Hi, Steve here. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Rootbound has a newsletter. You can find it at rootboundpodcast.com slash support. You are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Rootbound is sponsored by Pearspace. Do you like pears? Visit Pearspace today. Get pears. Eat pears. Go to rootboundpodcast.com backslash pearspace to learn more. Pearspace. It's an orchard. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Rootbound. My name is Steve, and I have with me... Jill. Hi, Jill. Uh, you might remember Jill from the episode not too long ago where Jill talked about the ficus genus, the figs, which was very interesting. Um, but Jill is more well known for having intense animal knowledge. And since I'm actually lucky enough to be in the same physical space as Jill now, we're not always in the same space, I thought it might be a fun excuse to talk about some animal facts, but with a plant-based twist. So so Jill is here to tell us some plant-based animal facts. What, what, what's it? Let's just start with one before we get into the real show. What is a, a plant-based animal fact you can share with us? Yeah, great. Thanks for having me on again. Um, I would like to talk about koalas and eucalyptus. Oh, okay. I know that they eat eucalyptus. What's the story with, with that? Yeah, they do. Uh, so eucalyptus is actually extremely poisonous. Okay. And they evolved in this weird niche to eat this extremely toxic poisonous plant. And um, what's really interesting is the the way they can. Uh, it's also it's also very uh, besides being poisonous, it's also nutrient poor. So okay, and it takes a ton of energy to eat because it's really tough and fibrous. So they have to spend a ton of time, pretty much all waking hours, eating and then <laughs> sleeping to digest it because they don't have energy because it doesn't provide them with much. Weird. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to eat like that. Yeah. And uh, the way they're able to digest this poisonous plant without dying is they have a special microbe in their stomach um, that helps them digest it uh, and, and process the poison. Um, but they're not born with this microbe. So do you know how they get the microbe? Uh, no. The mothers feed their babies poop. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. But where did the first microbe come from? This is a chicken or egg situation. I don't know. <laughs> what came first, the mother koala or the poop? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Um, well, that reminds me, <laughs> before we get in the show, that reminds me of my favorite um, koala and uh, plant-based joke. Do you know this one? No. Okay, so a koala walks into a bar, and uh, he sits down at the bar, uh, there, we're in a hotel room audience you can hear there's a vacuum in the hallway so please ignore um, but yes the, the koala walks into the bar he sits down at the bar he orders a cheeseburger he eats the cheeseburger and then he pulls a gun out of his vest turns to the guy next to him and, 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 and shoots him and then he walks out and then the bar uh, the guy, another guy at the bar is like oh my god what just happened that, that koala bear just just shot that guy what's going on and um, the bartender's like, it's totally normal. It's natural. It's how they it's how they are. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, it's totally normal. Just look it up on Wikipedia. So the guy pulls out his phone. He goes to Koala on Wikipedia, and it says, Koala Bear, eats, shoots, and leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that joke. Okay, I do it's, that. <laughs> isn't that for the Oxford comma? Oh, yes. It's yes. an Oxford comma joke, indeed. Yes. 
Love it. Well, anyway, I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't avoid telling that joke when it's Koalas. Uh, <laughs> but uh, let's get on to the interview segment of the show, and we'll check back in with Jill for another plant-based animal fact at the end. So the grizzly bear, he walks out of the room. Well, the panda bear is just sitting there, and he thinks to himself, this is odd. And then, what do you know? The phone rings. You know who it is? It's the polar bear. And the polar bear, he says to the panda bear, I didn't know it was a koala bear. Get it? Koala? Waka waka! This is all very amusing, but I have to be going now. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to Rootbound. Thanks for having me, Steve. You're very welcome. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. I have okra. Wonderful. I, I, okra is something that I, 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 was, I grew up in Texas, and I had a lot of fried okra as a kid, but I've realized now that I don't have any other interaction with okra probably since I was a child. So I'm excited to know more about okra. I don't really know anything about the plant. Excellent. And I'm not saying Oprah. And for uh-huh. those listening, <laughs> I do get that sometimes when I'm talking about okra and people will say Oprah. And I'm like, not that lady. <laughs> the edible plant. Yeah. Uh, so why, why did you choose okra? Why is okra meaningful to you? I feel like I am the okra board like you know how there's the milk board that promotes uh-huh. milk across the u.s or the beef board yeah and i don't know if there's an okra growers alliance that promotes okra but i feel like i'm the proselytizer of okra just because i'm getting everybody i know to grow it whether you like eating it or not and there's always a love-hate reaction people are like uh okra or i love <laughs> okra there's no in between i never hear like oh okra's okay but i just feel like it's such a easy plant to grow Mm. and so rewarding and so prolific and low maintenance that i can't Mm. imagine not growing it in your i love garden that's my favorite Mm -hmm. kind of exactly i really like the low maintenance stuff (laughs) the set it and forget it that's lazy type of gardening is the best kind of gardening definitely for me uh so yeah what what yeah tell me more about okra um maybe you can describe it a little bit to people who maybe don't know what it is or or have never seen one not deep fried (laughs) Mm-hmm. So the plant itself is a tall, thin, almost tropical looking plant, and it has large palmate leaves, palmate meaning that same kind of shape of as a maple leaf, or some mm. people might think marijuana leaf, but no, we're not going to go there. So it's <laughs> big, wide leaves. If you've seen a castor plant, similar looking leaves to that, uh, uh-huh. it's in the hibiscus family. So similar broad leaves in that and a tall stalk in the middle and it sends up flowers vertically that face almost up or Mm. out and the flowers themselves because it's in the hibiscus family or in the mallow family it is a hibiscus flower so if you even don't eat okra it's just a beautiful tropical looking plant and grows about depending on the variety three to six feet high so a good height for those of us who don't want to get on a ladder and pick Mm -hmm. our stuff or Mm -hmm. don't want to bend down anymore. I find that a lot with some of the older baby boomer generation. They're like, if I have to bend over to pick the crop, I don't want to grow it anymore. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. It's either raised beds or something at that perfect three to six foot height. And that's where the pods appear. So after a flower finishes, I call it the cigar stage. It kind of rolls up tight And then drops the flower, if you can imagine that. So if Uh you've had rows of Sharon or similar hibiscus plants, they kind of, after a day, the flower rolls up and just drops itself on the ground, Mm self-shedding. And then that's where the pod starts to form. So it looks like a little 
Um, at first, I would say like a Christmas light, like a little Christmas bulb. Oh, sure. That's yeah. how it starts. And then it elongates. And depending on the variety, it's either a finger long or so that you want to get it about four inches when you want to pick it. And some can be thicker and fatter. Some can be green. Some can be red. And we can get into some of the red and burgundies later. But you want to pick them when they're small and tender um, mm -hmm. for eating, not when they're kind of gotten too much woodiness and, and hard. And we can talk a little bit later, too, about how um, you can tell when they're past their picking prime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Uh, and, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe let's talk about those two things, the mm -hmm. colors and the and uh, and how to know when they're past their prime. Before we get into, I think, which I may be most interested about is, is eating them. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let's stick with the plant. Definitely the, the fun part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they're conventionally green. The plant is from Africa, and it's been found in Egyptian tombs and even earlier oh, wow. that they were growing okra. And it's most associated with Ethiopia. So it was a green, speaking of the colors, green plant for centuries, millennia. And it's only recently that it was selected for the more burgundy. So sometimes when it ages, mm. it'll get kind of a burgundy burnish to it. So somebody was selected for the more burgundy color to it. And now they have burgundy okra which some people call red okra some people call purple okra and some people call burgundy and it's essentially the same plant i've been told and not just the pods but the stems are also deep red so it's oh, you know beautiful. even more beautiful so you've got that red veining in the leaf and then this the pods and stems are also that color and i've grown red okra for several years and try to compare it to green okra as far as flavor profile, I don't find any difference. I'm hmm. going to say the red okra is maybe a little bit more perfumey or flowery, just a mm -hmm. tiny bit more, but otherwise flowers and the look of it seems to be the same. And I was just going to say that I've been told it's the anthrocyanins, what they were breeding for to make it more purple. So mm. the chlorophyll to the back, anthrocyanins come forward, and that's how you have green grapes versus purple grapes, mm. the anthrocyanins. Mm. And so a lot of plants are being bred now to have that deep purpleness in it because that is a cancer fighter. Mm. Um, so I think that's why they were doing that breeding, not just because it's pretty, but because it increased yeah, that nutrient in the plant. Very interesting. And you, you, uh, you were going to, before we get more onto food, you're going to say mm -hmm. one more thing about how you know when they're getting yeah. too many. Yeah. So I said earlier also that okra is super low maintenance, set it and forget it. Like if anything has to be watering in my plot, it's not the okra. Like I can uh -huh. just plant oh, it. The seedling comes up. It just kind of goes on its own, loves the heat and humidity of our area. Maybe throw some water on it once in a while if it starts to look sad. But the one maintenance thing there is on okra is picking the pods pretty much every other day or every mm. two days at the longest. You don't want to go longer than that because then the nice tender pods start to get really woody and form what is essentially, of course, their seed pod with the hard seeds inside. And once it goes past that kind of woody stage, it's no longer 
edible or at least it's a bit too fibrous for human beings mm-hmm, maybe deer mm-hmm. or somebody else could eat it <laughs> mm-hmm, for us mm-hmm. so if you have a question you're like okay i skipped a day i went away for the weekend and i come to my little okra patch and i want to know is this too woody to eat and prepare or if it's a little bit under you snap the pot the pod off and then you hold it with the tip up like mm-hmm. a tip of your finger and you put your thumb on the tip and bend the the tip back if the tip breaks off cleanly you can eat it if the tip just oh. kind of bends and it kind of you'll know immediately it kind of just like if you're pushing on it and it doesn't give at all and it kind of just splits and has fibers in it then you know way too past gone throw that in the compost pile good tip uh, I, next year i will definitely go some okra and i will i'll use that mm-hmm. tip um, yeah, I learned so, that from a, oh, I was just going to say, I learned that from a fellow community gardener at my community garden, and she's from Jamaica, and she was like, a duh, like everybody knows this, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I was yeah, like, yeah. nobody knows this here, nobody is testing their, going around and snapping the tops off their okra that I know. I love, I love those kind of tips that you can learn from people with, you know, different experiences, that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. So let's talk about eating them. You know, like I said, when I was a kid, we would go to like Chili's and the thing that we I ate when I was like six was like fried okra, right? That's like what you ate. That's my only real experience with eating it. So I'm sure there's mm-hmm. lots of other fun ways to consume it. Oh, yeah. Well, anything battered and fried is good. I mean, True. anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you can get kids to eat that. But yeah, I tend to eat my okra raw straight in the garden. So mm. I'll just pop off a couple pods and just eat it. And it's usually when it's a hot day and I just need something like mm-hmm. there's a little bit of moisture in there when they're fresh it doesn't have that sliminess that people oh, find off-putting cool. yeah because they're fresh straight from the garden and it, the taste is similar I always say to green bean I would just describe uh-huh. the taste as green like your generic green is just mm-hmm. what it tastes like and it's got a nice crispness to it like biting into a crisp pickle when you just mm. bite into the raw fresh one and that's like very extremely fresh straight off the plant into your mouth if i was to wait a day and like keep it in the kitchen overnight and then try to eat it raw it would probably be a little bit fibrous at that point so if you bought it from the farmer's market ask them if they picked it that morning or the day before or something i see and then you might want to cook it um, cook it more i guess yeah you you can like break down some of the fiberness with cooking Exactly. Saute it. And then some people will eat it raw, cut up in a salad. If you're on a raw food diet or a plant-based diet, you can cut it into, I guess you call it a coin. So the same Mm -hmm. way you might fry it um, into little coins, you can saute it, you can stir fry it. So some of those cooking processes may start to release that gelatinous, uh, what people call sliminess. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. in there and you can cook that off or, and some people like it because it is a thickener as Mm -hmm, is used mm -hmm. in gumbo and some people do not like it. (laughs) So that's, (laughs) I always say it's not the taste of okra. I just a texture thing. And I, and I don't know about you, Steve, but I'm a hyper texture eater. Mm, So mm -hmm. if I like raw okra, you're going to like raw okra. (laughs) I'm not super, I think I am pretty open on textures, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I've never, never tried it raw and i definitely want to do that that sounds fun and i think i guess I, I what i like about that is that you probably can't have that experience unless you really grow it or like you know you're like you said you know the farmer's market is mm-hmm. super fresh right at the grocery yep. store you're probably not likely to get stuff that is edible no raw. very much that's not. cool yeah 
I love and, those things that are like only accessible when you grow mm-hmm. it. It's fun. And fresh. Like it's such different, you know, growing your own stuff is a different experience all around, but experience it fresh is much more. I was going to say that okras also use sometimes a substitute for zucchini. So if like you were making Ooh. a squash casserole or something, you could use it that way. And I have seen people grill it. I have never eaten it grilled. Hmm. Not a big barbecue or grilled person, but I can totally see putting it on a skewer and grilling it that it would be really good that way too. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you have any other fun facts or dazzling details about okra? <laughs> so we were talking off air a little bit earlier and I said, I'm going to drop a fact that, that might be a little bit off color, but I'll still do it. And that's, <laughs> we were talking about if you eat corn, you know, you ate corn the next day um, uh-huh. in the restroom. And then same thing <laughs> with uh, okra, because it is an excellent source of soluble fiber uh-huh. and it has those little white pearl seeds inside the pod. So uh-huh. that's what might show up a day or two later for you. <laughs> okay. So if you're not a thorough chewer or you just uh-huh. eat a bunch of fried okra really quick, then you might know that you ate okra a day or two later. Well, g- good to know. And also good to know about the fiber thing because I was looking for tasty ways to mm-hmm. include more fiber in your diet. So. Yeah, it's no. It's supposed to be a heart disease fighter plant, mm. and mm-hmm. it's very low in calories. That's something I didn't know. I mean, I would have guessed yeah. it because it's pretty hollow. I'm going to say fried okra, not the lowest in calories. <laughs> I was so. just about to say that might be the <laughs> exception to the calorie thing. <laughs> but probably the equivalent of green beans, same amount of calories or so. Something is growing. <gasps> a sprout! And there's some more. What is it? Carrots? Peas? <gasps> Maybe it's okra. Who cares what it is? It's growing. I've saved the farm. Uh, well, thank you for sharing about okra. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? No, go ahead. All right. I was going back and forth on this. And, you know, you're like a plant person. So I might not be able to surprise you with many of these facts, but maybe. And mm-hmm. I, I had another plant picked out, but then I had a, a moment this morning that made me change my mind about the plant I want to talk about. But I'm actually going to rewind even further back to my childhood Hmm. i was born in texas and every summer we would go to my great grandpa's lake house on lake livingston and there was a tree there right on the water and it was a it was a tree that um it was a little bit of a joke to give people the fruit from this tree because if you (laughs) ate the fruit it would make your mouth pucker up entirely Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know the tree that I'm talking about, but with that with that clue, is it American persimmon? Ding ding ding! You got oh, it. Oh yeah, that's the one. And yeah. and the reason I chose it is today I was on a walk with my wife, and there was a bunch on the ground, and I didn't realize there was a tree on our normal mm-hmm. walking path. And I was like, oh wait, that's a persimmon on the ground. And then I looked up, and I've been walking by this like every day and never noticed. But we have one, so I I got a few, but they're. Uh, really ripe right now, and I I have eaten about five of them with no bitterness, so that was cool. Uh, good. I was gonna say, yeah. I think once they hit the ground, that you're good to go. But yeah. then it's competition with the raccoons, the deer, everybody else is good to go on those as well. Indeed, and and it is a little bit of a, a you know, from my understanding, um, it can be a little bit of a tree by tree thing too. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll hit the ground and still be bitter. And then sometimes it's a little bit of like the the texture 
and some trees just don't ever get as bitter. It's a little bit of an interesting um, gamble with this fruit, mm-hmm. but that's one of the reasons I think it's so interesting. Um, hmm. Some of the fun facts and dazzling details. I, I, I learned some very interesting things about this. So its Latin name is Diospiros virginiana. And uh, that Diospiros means food of the gods in, in Greek. And that comes from a plant that is uh, known as the date plum in Europe, mm-hmm. but it is also known as the lilac persimmon, and it is, essentially looks just like the American persimmon, but it's it's a European variety. So that's where Diospiros comes from. When I saw Diospiros as the genus name, I was like, why do I know that genus? Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know if where I'm going here with Diospiros. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I have like a little bit of like background about uh, l- like uh, lumber and various kinds of commercial wood. Mm-hmm. And Diospiros is the same genus as ebony. Yep. So I, I didn't realize that. And apparently persimmon is, is used in similar ways. I guess it's not doesn't get as quite as big as some of those commercial ebonies. And the heartwood is maybe not as, as thick, but there are it, it apparently has very beautiful dark heartwood just like ebony, which is super cool. Hmm. Yeah, I've never heard of any piece of furniture or woodcraft out of persimmon tree. <laughs> Just the never thing, seen any. Yeah. The thing that I read about, I think it's because the heartwood is not as wide, so you can't mm-hmm. do as many things with it. But apparently it is still very commonly used to make drivers, heads for drivers in golf. It's apparently <laughs> that's like a it's very dense. And, and yeah. yeah, and also apparently uh, pool cues too. I think that that heaviness is, is good. So that's hmm. that's really fascinating. And I, I, it's interesting that it... it uh, it didn't. Uh, maybe it's just because the heartwood is too small compared to some of those. Because those, you know, ebony's are uh, in other places, and you know, in Africa and uh, mainly Africa are like so sought after and very mm-hmm. like widely uh, harvested and to a degree of like unsustainability. But here we have this tree kind of in our backyard that has similar characteristics, and people have kind of maybe luckily ignored it for that purpose because they haven't mm-hmm. been cutting down these trees because it takes a very long time for the, those kind of trees to grow. But yeah, I had no idea that this tree was, uh, was in the same uh, genus, Diospiros. The, I'm, I'm much more familiar actually with the Asian persimmon and, and some of those almost as more of an ornamental tree. But mm-hmm. if you get mm-hmm. fruit out of them, great. And unlike our native one, they don't make you pucker when they're, <laughs> when they're much, not yeah. so ripe. They, and they have a bit of a different texture. They're more crisp and, and less kind of custardy when they're ripe than the native one. But I just know them as a small, beautiful ornamental tree because of their fall foliage that comes that yeah. kind of like sunset color to them. So it's a sought after tree for Asian gardens or small space gardens as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah, well, I, I guess they're smaller trees too because the American persimmon is quite a tall tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can get quite massive i guess i I forget 20 meters it can be uh, yeah yeah the asian one definitely and that i think it's partly pruning but partly the Mm -hmm. breeding that they're keeping Mm -hmm. them you know more umbrella shaped within your reach again not having to totally get up on a ladder and be able to get to them yeah i haven't really eaten many of the asian persimmons and i think one one thing i think is interesting is i feel like that's the persimmon most people are familiar with Mm -hmm. but the word persimmon is an algonquin rooted word so so this word kind of like started in this continent mm-hmm. and, and it's, it, it's, I mean, it's a word meaning dried fruit, but then somehow became the common word in English for this other fruit that most people know as a commercial f- uh, fruit. You know, I think I thought that was pretty interesting. The English word 
you know, I'm sure, you know, in the Asian languages, it's not related to persimmon at all. No, but in English, this, this, right, this American, <laughs> this, uh, you know, Native American word, you know, stuck around, which, you know, is kind of rare uh, in, in common language for that. So I, I thought that was pretty mm-hmm. cool. That makes sense for a native tree to have a Native American name. And I could see that they would make a fruit leather or something out of it. Like you could totally see gathering up a bunch of yeah. overripe persimmons and then just kind of shellacking them on some leaves or a sheet of something and drying them out for fruit leather later on. And that would be a nice sweet and, you know, something different to be eating in the wintertime. Yeah, that'd be, I should try that. That'd be fun. And yeah, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the name meaning dried fruit makes sense if that that's how uh, mm-hmm. it's it's used. So um, maybe two last little fun facts. One is I just the bark is so cool. If you look at a persimmon tree, oh, yeah. it's got these really thick scales. It almost looks like a dinosaur like mm-hmm. leg or something like that. And it's really <laughs> distinctive once you like once you learn to recognize it. It's pretty cool. So that's one thing I want to highlight. And then the other one, which this is super fascinating. I, I and I, I referenced well. In my episode, which was two weeks ago, um, I I talked about pawpaws, mm. and uh, in that, after I was like putting on some stuff, in my show notes, I found this article which talked about pawpaws, but also talked about persimmons. And the article was from uh, Harvard's like forestry department, written by a woman named Connie Barlow, and the article was entitled Anac- Anac- "Anachronistic Fruits and the Ghosts Who Haunt Them," which I thought was a <laughs> very cool title. <laughs> And essentially what uh, she was writing about is these trees and it started in in South America, but these fruit trees that the fruits uh, fall and rot below the tree. Mm -hmm. And the question is, why does a fruit do that? It seems like it's not advantageous. Even some of them, apparently, when they start to rot, the seeds become unviable. So Mm -hmm. what is the what is the evolutionary advantage to that? And their theory was, and they have some evidence about this, that it's because these were trees that relied on megafauna that is now extinct. Mm-hmm. And so they they were, you, their plan was not to rot, but now there's nothing that eats them like that. So mm-hmm. that tr- the fruit falls. However, and they and she mentioned these um, these plants in South America that do that. Um, and there's a lot of trees in Africa that rely on like falling fruit for spreading of things too. However, I don't know if she, they, she mentioned persimmon and pawpaws as a similar fruit, but I, I kind of think that maybe something has changed with those or maybe the evolution has changed a little bit because both pawpaws and persimmons do have to rot on the ground like they fall, mm-hmm. but neither of them are really that edible when they're on the tree. Nope. Yeah, and, I think that the pawpaw, it has to go through some type of fermentation of a stomach or something. Yeah. So so I think what is interesting about them is that when they're edible, they are rotten. And so maybe it's for my for me, I don't she probably knows better because mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating article. But I think there is something interesting about a tree that's fruit falls when it is ripe, which mm-hmm. most commercial fruits we think about uh you can pick when they're ripe. But these ones are like, no, it's ready. I'm I've fallen. Now I'm edible. Um mm-hmm. but so that was my first theory, but then I read her theory that no, it's it's about these extinct animals. And I do know that the pawpaw, you know, its seeds can't really be consumed by anything. Um, there's no animal big enough to really consume pawpaw seeds, but that's not the same as the persimmon. But anyway, I thought there are two of these interesting fruits that, that aren't 
really edible until they're kind of rotten, which is which mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. Yeah, and there, there's actually the holly bear, the native holly berries for our area, the Ilex reticulata. Those aren't eaten by birds until they're fermented at the end of winter. So there's oh. funny because there's other things that have been paired that like the birds leave that berry alone. So you get nice color on those berry shrubs until like right when winter and spring is going to break, the berries kind of shrivel up and ferment. And then the birds all come at once. The robins will just strip all the, they know they're like, Oh, the holly berries are ready now. <laughs> so they're waiting for that day. So I don't know if like the ancient mastodons or whatever it was, was waiting for the pawpaw drop day. And they were like, now I'm going to get drunk on these pawpaws and yeah. <laughs> run around and eat all those. But yeah, that seed in the pawpaw is just so huge. Um, yeah. And the persimmon, you know, other animals like deer and raccoons are eating persimmon and spreading the seed, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's true. Um, but yeah, super interesting tree. Really cool mm-hmm. tree. I didn't know it was related to ebony. Really fun fruit. I think I'm going to tr- I think, well, on my list of things to do with them, which I might have missed the boat uh, this year because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be around. Uh, maybe for, we'll see. But the, the thing I've been doing with almost every fruit lately is make mead because I'm a beekeeper and I mm-hmm. like making mead. So I got to do some persimmon mead. But I do think the fruit leather is a really cool idea. I think I'm going to try that because that sounds like a great way to do it. And you probably have, uh, you're probably going to be pretty sure you're not going to get any of that bitterness um, No, if you let it and, dry. Exactly. And somebody gave me an old dehydrator a couple years ago. And I have really not used it for anything except for making sun-dried tomatoes. Mm. And that's a great idea is to try to make some fruit. It has a mat that comes with it for making fruit leather. So maybe I'll, I'll look and see if I can get some really ripe persimmons and maybe pawpaw fruit leather. Now you're making me oh, think about that too. That's Although, a fun idea too. That's so custardy. I will, it probably would take like a week to dry. <laughs> <laughs> that's to possible. Leather. Yeah. That's interesting. I, w- one last thing I think I didn't, I didn't talk about enough for, for those out there first hearing about American persimmons, that's an edible thing. Mm-hmm. Make sure they are really ripe because that astringency is no mm-hmm. joke. If you've nope. ever had one, like it literally feels like your mouth is turning inside out if you have one that is not fully ripe. So I just wanted to highlight that. Like it's this fruit that is really tasty when ripe, but when it's not ripe, uh, it's a it's an yeah. experience. It sticks it's around like for a long a time. Thousand lemons. Like imagine <laughs> sucking on a thousand lemons. Yeah, like yeah. way past that. And there are some rhyming couplet that's escaping my mind right now that says that pucker not something pick it pick it and you pucker not something like that we can look it up later i'll google it later and put it put mm-hmm. it in here at the end of the show um well well very good uh thank you kathy so much for joining me on this episode of rootbound thank you for having me steve this is normally the time in an episode where you would be hearing that rhyming couplet mentioned by kathy earlier in the episode however I could not find it. So if you know what uh, couplet she was trying to remember, please send it my way because I'm very curious. I googled my hardest and I couldn't find it. However, when I was googling about persimmons, I did find another fun piece of persimmon folklore or maybe it's persimmon phenology. Do you remember that word phenology? Back in the episode where I talked with Eric about alocasia, poly, the uh, elephant ear plant. At the beginning of that episode, I talked about the practice of phenology, which is the study of the cycles of living things and, and what we can interpret from them. So here's a little piece of persimmon phenology, 
And this is from the Farmer's Almanac. Apparently, this is a a well-known thing. The truth of it or not is maybe a little unclear, but it's fun anyway. This says that if you slice a persimmon seed in half and look at the shape that is made in the middle of it, which is actually the cotyledon, it's like where the plant will eventually come out, they say if that looks like a fork, the winter will be mild. But if it looks like a spoon, there will be lots of snow. And if it looks like a knife, the winter will be bitingly cold and cut like a knife. So I thought that was really cool. And since I have some persimmons right now, I thought I would try it. So I cut one, you know, lengthwise down the middle. Pretty tricky to do, to split it, you know, like that. Uh, but I did. And um, I think it was a fork shape. I, I asked my wife, Carly, she actually said it looks more like a spork. So maybe we're going to be in between the mild winter and a lot of snow. But I think it was more of the fork shape from the pictures I saw on the internet. And I'll post a picture of it on my social media so you can see what I'm talking about too. So that's a little piece of persimmon phenology using the sign from inside the persimmon to predict the winter. Whether that is true or not, it doesn't look like there's been any rigorous science studying it, but it is apparently a well-known piece of folklore or phenology. One more note, I also did try making some persimmon fruit leather, and it was very tasty, and I'll definitely try it again. But one little tip for making fruit leather, I only had a few of them, and I made them, you know, so it was a small batch, and it and I made it in a circle instead of like a rectangle. And maybe don't do it in a circle because I, I couldn't help but think it looked like one of those novelty uh, dog vomits that you get uh, like the back of a mad magazine or something. <laughs> so uh, my next tip for me making persimmon fruit leather or any fruit le- leather that kind of turns darkish orange, I'm going to make it bigger and in a more rectangular sheet so it doesn't uh, look so distasteful. Anyway, uh, that's all I have to say about persimmons. And let's just check back in with Jill before we end the episode. Well, that was a very fun chat with Kathy about those two plants. And um, Jill, do you have any opinions about okra? Oh, uh, I, I've had it and thought it was good. Okay, cool. What about persimmons? I don't know that I've had persimmon. Okay, well, we can, I can, if I got a little tree by my house, I can share one sometime if you come out to, to Virginia. Um, but yes, let's get back to some plant-based animal facts. Do you have another plant-based animal fact before we ri- wind up this episode of Rootbound? I do. Uh, so you know what a pitcher plant is, correct? I th- yes. It, I mean, it's shaped like a pitcher, I imagine. Mm-hmm. But aren't they the ones that are like, don't they like, some of those, aren't they like carnivorous plants? They are. Oh. So, you know, most of the time if an animal falls in one, it's not good. Mm-hmm. Um, it will eat bugs. It can even eat small rodents that fall in, um, amphibians, reptiles, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but apparently in uh, 2010, a species of frog was found that lives in the pitcher plant. Whoa. And it even um, attaches its eggs to the side of the pitcher plant. And then when they hatch, the tadpoles grow up in the liquid. And they don't get digested? Apparently not. Whoa, that's really fascinating. Wow, that's super cool. That was a fun plant-based animal fact. <laughs> I was not expecting it. First it was about a, an animal that eats a specific poisonous plant, and now it's about a carnivorous plant that the animal lives in. Yes. Very interesting. <laughs> um, well, I think that uh, wraps up this episode of Rootbound. Jill, thank you for joining me for this episode. Thank you for having me. And if you haven't, listened to Jill's episode where she talks about ficus. Lots of other fun facts and dazzling details, including some animal-based Plant facts, Correct. not plant-based animal facts. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, talk to you on the next episode.
My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Kathy Jentz. Kathy is the host of the Garden DC podcast and editor of the Washington Gardener magazine. We also heard this episode from my friend Jill Harris, animal expert extraordinaire. Rootbound is hosted by Steve Ellington, who's really craving some fried okra. Music by Christian Krigascota. Fake ads by David Lonnie. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside on a nice fall day, you could gather some wild persimmons and see whether you're lucky enough to get some sweet ones or whether they're going to make your face turn inside out. It's fun. Pear Space. It's an orchard.